Living Stones is a weekly conversation about living a truly Catholic life. Deacon Harold Burke Sivers and Ken Hellenius help you deepen your relationship with Christ and His Church, discussing practical ways to grow in faith, participate more fully in the liturgy, and practice charity towards all. Hello and welcome to Living Stones. I am your host, co-host, actually, Ken Hellenius, and sitting across from me is my dear friend, a dynamic deacon who preaches the word in and out of season, a fellow pilgrim who has put on the full armor of Christ and has the quads, the delts, and the pecs to fill it out. It's my buddy, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Hello, Deacon. Hello, Ken. How you doing, my friend? I am well. Thank you. It's a uh... School is getting ready to start already back here on campus. We've already seen staff return to Notre Dame. We've seen, of course, you know, like the the folks who are here only during the academic year, they're already back full time. Uh, The RAs are arriving to begin their training, all of this kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, it's hot outside. And yet here we are still having a good time. How about you? Yeah, well, you know, I had my uh, tons of travels overseas, so I got my... uh summer shortened yeah because of course it was winter in new zealand and (laughs) australia Uh, but it was warm in papua new guinea so Ah. you know it's closer to the equator so it was warmer up there but it was like winter and then summer and then winter again it's like you know it was all over the place but uh had an incredible time and then um was home for a couple days didn't really have time to recover from the jet lag before leaving again (laughs) to go to uh steubenville ohio and did uh, Pints with Aquinas with Matt Frad. Yeah. Uh, that wonderful podcast. And then did the Defending the Faith Conference uh, at Steubenville. And, and then did a, a recording at Emmaus Academy, which is part of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, uh, founded by Scott Hahn. And Dr. Hahn asked me to contribute a class to the Emmaus Academy. And so uh, last time I was in Steubenville, um, I spoke at the last conference there a few months ago. I met with the uh, heads of the Emmaus Academy, and we put together a plan. And I did a uh, a series on evangelization. Oh, fantastic! Which was uh, yeah, which was a lot of fun. And then I spoke at a benefit dinner for Greg and Julie Alexander at the Alexander House in San Antonio, Texas, doing amazing work for marriage and family life. Just truly inspirational work. I've known. Uh, Greg and Julie for years. It was an honor to go down and uh, speak at their event. And then I did only the third wedding I've ever done as a deacon um, in, in North Carolina. A good friend of mine, his, uh, her son, is getting married and asked me to do the when I asked, well, how come a priest is not doing it? Well, his wife is not Roman Catholic. She's um, okay. Armenian Catholic or, you know, so it's like, oh, Armenian Catholic, you know, so technically they're not part of the, they're not part of the Orthodox. They're not part of the Roman Catholic. They're oh, kind of their own okay. autocephalous group. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's, it's strange. So, <laughs> so uh, they're not having a, uh, cause we can't do, they can't do communion. Sure. So even though it's going to be a valid marriage, they're not going to do mass because people on her side can't receive communion. So in that case, they asked me to come and do the wedding. And then since I was there, the, the pastor asked me to give a talk and, <laughs> so very busy summer actually busy summer. Uh, yeah. for me. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Usually the summer's slow, which is why I go overseas during the summer because it's busier in that part of the world. But it's been a very busy whirlwind time. But uh, you know, this is what God has called me to do, and 
I'm, I'm truly grateful to have these opportunities. Sometimes people get so jealous. Oh, you get to go all these places, but you know, I'm there to work. Right. You know, right. um, I, I don't, I don't do a lot of sightseeing or, or enjoying myself. I, I'm really to stay focused on what God has called me to do. And, and, uh, Papua New Guinea was incredible. I saw all the talks were at an indoor stadium. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I spoke, uh, well, I did it for three days, four events in three days. So, the first day I spoke, and at the papal nuncio met me there, and the bishops' conference, uh, bishops from the bishops' conference met me at the airport, and then they had we had a very nice dinner, and then I spoke the next day to members of parliament, and government officials, and Catholic professionals, business professionals. <laughs> it was that was a little daunting actually. I was like, man, you know. And then uh, in the afternoon, I spoke to uh, clergy and religious. And that was the first day. The next day, I spoke with uh, a youth. I did a youth rally with uh, about 10,000 youth were there Wow! Um, at, at this at this uh, event. And then the la- my last full day there, I just did a general, it was a general talk, a general audience. But I gave like several talks at each of the events. So I gave two talks to the business professionals, three talks to the priest religious, three talks for the youth, uh, three talks for the... Wow, <laughs> for the no kids. rest for like, the Dad. weary, my friend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then Australia again was another uh, ten days. You know, I did like, you know, twenty talks in ten days or wow. twenty five talks, something like that. It's just uh, not including the homily. So, yeah. So the the question on my mind, and I'm certain on the mind of several of our fine listeners, is what does Deacon Harold do to keep his voice strong? I mean, is it slippery elm bark? You know, or one of those other. That's it. Home, is that is that what it is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, my uh, brother-in-law was dating an opera singer in Portland, and and uh, I was just asking, what should I do with my voice? I'm speaking a lot, so she gave me some vocal exercises, kind of warm up. Yeah, just like you stretch before you run. Sure. You know, you stretch your vocal cords before you speak, and then then the slippery elm bark. <laughs> and when she told me about, it, I laughed. I'm like, oh come on, I'm not into this natural path stuff. But yeah. she goes, no, no, it really works, and so. I took a chance and got it, and it it works. It I don't know. Wow. All the only ingredient is elm bark. Elm bark, yeah. That's it. Yeah, I've seen the and, little uh, pastilles in the works. Uh, in, in the natural, you know, food store and things like that. I was like, those things look weird, you know. But uh, I talk a lot, and they taste weird, and they taste weird. But, yeah, but they work. Well, there you go. Yeah, See, indoors, what they need is one of those stickers. You know, what was it? I remember reading about uh, in the late nineteenth century. There was a. Uh, fortified wine called Vin Mariani that uh, was an Italian fortified wine. And apparently the fellow had presented a bottle to Pope Leo Thirteenth, and Pope Leo Thirteenth smiled at him. And so all of his ads, you know, were, you know, endorsed by the Pope, you know, this wine. And the guy yeah, said, yeah. well, here's what the, the slippery Elmbark people need to do is say endorsed by Deacon Harold. I'm telling you, you could be sitting on a gold mine here, Deacon. This could be this could be our ticket out. <laughs> Call us slippery Elmbark uh, people. We're we're available on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Deacon, you know, for right. a number of weeks we have been having uh, fantastic introductions. You've been introducing me to several of our 
forefathers in the faith, the, the fathers and doctors. I've been introducing uh, several of them, certainly not introducing you to them because you're a very well-read student, scholar, theologian, and, and a practitioner of the faith, so you know these guys already. I'm doing research to try to find something that you didn't know, and it never works because you're you're always <laughs> hip to hip to the fathers, which is a cool place to be. And uh, that's actually why we've been chatting about it. the fathers and doctors of the church are those who have done so much to think about, to reflect upon, and to give us the fruits of their prayer and their conversation with the Lord. And so we've talked about the earliest fathers and doctors, of course, the, the earliest martyrs, all the way up to, well, we're, we're still in the fourth century today when we discuss one of the single most influential patristic writers in the church, and I'm really excited to talk about this guy today. Oh, excellent. Um, so who is it? Well, I thought you'd never ask. So <laughs> we're, gonna, <laughs> we're going to talk about a guy whose first name was actually Eusebius, but he went by his third name, his family name. He went by Hieronymus. Now, that's a fun Latinized name. Hieronymus is the name Jerome. It's also, by the way, the name Geronimo. So Geronimo, uh, of course, we think of the, the great Native American chief, Geronimo. That was his, his kind of English name. Uh, he shared the name of St. Jerome. Jerome was um, perhaps the, mo- the most influential on Bible theology and Bible, uh, certainly Bible translation. We have the Bible that the Catholic Church used for basically from his lifetime in the fourth century all the way, and I mean, it's still the official translation of the church, the Vulgate Bible. It is the work of St. Jerome and his successors who've continued to, to work on the scripture translations and things like that. So a little bit about St. Jerome. He was born into a Christian family in the mid-340s in modern-day Croatia. And yet, even though his family was Christian, he didn't receive baptism until he was 19 years old. And he did that in Rome. He had gone to Rome to further his studies in philosophy and rhetoric. We've heard this so much about so many of the early fathers and doctors, right, that they they had basically interests in kind of civil law, civil uh, rhetoric, the art of persuasion, things like that. So much like that, uh, Jerome himself had gone to Rome to pursue studies, and he really became convicted of the Christian faith that he had been raised in but not baptized. So baptized at age 19, soon afterward, he traveled to Syria, where he lived as a hermit in the desert south of Aleppo. And he spent a number of years here at his hermitage devoting himself to the study of the scriptures and to perfecting his Greek language, uh, his understanding of the Greek tongue, uh, and beginning to learn Hebrew because he wanted to know Christ and to know God ever more deeply. And he was convinced and convicted that it is in the divine self-revelation in the scriptures that we encounter Christ and we encounter God's plan. And so he really took to this deep learning, prayer, and meditation on the scriptures and reading the early fathers of the church, reading those who had first come after Christ, those that we've already talked about so many times here on our show together, um, especially, you know, the earliest fathers. So here he is in the 360s, the 370s AD, already looking to the fathers of the church as being 
definitive interpreters of scripture and tradition. It was through his meditation on the Word of God that he became keenly aware of the contrast between the pagan wisdom of the world, which he had learned when he had gone off to Rome to study rhetoric and philosophy, so the the pagan wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of the Christian faith that he was encountering by reading the wisdom books of the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs, the wisdom of Solomon, the book of Ecclesiastes, the Psalms. He encounters this wisdom of the faith, this wisdom that comes from being in deep relationship with God, with Jesus Christ. And so he wrote about this vision that he had, drawing the distinction, uh, in which he was being scourged before God because he was, quote, Ciceronian rather than Christian. And this really convicted his heart. Again, he was so deep into his what he thought of as pagan studies that he was neglecting the wisdom that comes from encountering and reflecting upon the Lord. And so this is kind of what sets the stage for Jerome to really it's his time in the desert as a hermit that um, kind of secures his identity and his, uh, his sense of mission is to know Christ and then to share Christ with others. This is what drives him from the very start of his life. Yeah, St. Jerome, tremendous influence. And what I love about the Vulgate, you know, everybody asks, which translation of the Bible do you use? You know, and of course, I use the Revised Standard Version, Catholic edition. But I don't think there's any translation that's absolutely perfect, you know. Um, but Because our language changes. The language right, exactly. we use changes every day, and so, and we're and we're looking at self-revelation that was written down originally, you know, sometimes three thousand years ago, you know, all the way up to to the mid one hundreds A.D. So yeah, or early one hundreds A.D., kind of the late late first century. Yeah, and what I appreciate about Jerome is, uh, especially in the New Testament, the accuracy of his translation. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, from the Greek to the Latin, of course. Then, of course, you go from Latin to English, and then we, you know, you, yeah. you lose every time you translate, you lose something, right? Of of the mm-hmm. of the feel. But what I appreciate with him, uh, I, I may have told this story before in, in graduate school. Father Mitch Pack was teaching us uh, Greek, and we were translating the Our Father, and, and he put us into pairs, tra- like kind of translation partners. And so we're going through the Our Father. We got we got to give us this day our daily bread. And we expected to see the word Hamera, which is the word for daily. Instead, we saw Epiusias. Epiusias? The heck is that? You know, so, so uh, I mean, it threw us off because we we're that's not the word we're expecting to see. And so we're asking each other, do we ask the people next to us and on the other side of us? And we're all confused. And Father Mitch saw the little commotion. He goes, what's going on? I said, well, we don't understand what this word is. And so he stopped the class and wrote it up in Greek on the board and explained epi, uh, epi means above, beyond, super. Usias means substance, essence, nature, or being. So he said the, the actual translation is like supernatural, super substantial bread. Mm-hmm. We're like, wait, what? How did you get from supernatural to daily? You know, but when you look at the Vulgate, because uh, someone did have a, he let us use whatever translation we wanted. Although you know he used the Greek. I mean, he literally he had no English at all when he taught the wow, class. Yeah, uh, he yeah. he read from the Greek, but someone did have a Vulgate, and it actually said consubstantial. So Jerome got it right. Jerome got it absolutely you say consubstantial correct. or super substantial. Super substantial, yeah, yeah, consubstantial, yeah. super substantial, 
supernatural. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're all legitimate translations of epiusias, which is a hapaxagomenon. Yeah. It's a word that appears in a text once and nowhere else. And so Jerome got it right. And, and it was changed when, of course, the first Bible in English was a Protestant Bible. Uh, you know, so, sure. And they right. didn't like well, that yeah. word. So they changed it to daily as a reference to the manna in the desert that was given twice daily in the desert until, of course, Joshua crossed with the people over to the promised land and the manna stopped. So that's what it's a reference to. But clearly, the word in Greek reflects Jesus' intention of of really referring to the Eucharist. Yep. You know, yep. As, as a super substantial, supernatural, which makes perfect sense when you hear what he says in John 6. So cheers to Jerome. Cheers to Jerome. You know, yeah, he's, I mean, you've hinted upon some of the single most important things about him, right? So, so first off, he leaves his hermitage. His friend, Pope Damasus, calls him to Rome and hires him basically as his secretary and his counselor. So Pope Damasus valued the wisdom that Jerome had gained, you know, because of, as a fruit of his time in reflection and prayer and meditation upon the scriptures. So he calls him to Rome, and Pope Damasus commissions Jerome to revise the old Latin text that they had of the four Gospels from the best Greek texts that were available. And this is something that Jerome did. So uh, he gets to this work. He revises the uh, translations into Latin of the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then he proceeded to uh, do a new translation of the Psalms as well. The Psalms already were vitally important in the life of the church as its prayer book, as its, you know, song book, uh, much as it was and it represents uh, in Judaism. These are the songs and prayers of the faithful. And so already we see what we think of today as the Liturgy of the Hours or the Divine Office, the breviary. We already see this being in the life of the church, which was a direct, uh, it was directly a continuation of uh, the early church's life as Jewish uh, believers in God in Judaism. So, after his friend and employer, Pope Damasus, died in 384, uh, Jerome moved to Bethlehem. Uh, you can still visit the cave where St. Jerome lived. And he lived in this cave, and he worked on translating the rest of the books of the Old Testament. This time, uh, rather than from Greek, and rather than revising the text that existed that was translation of the Septuagint, or the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, he gathered the best Hebrew manuscripts that he could find, the best manuscripts in the original language of the Old Testament. And he would supplement his translation, however, with the Septuagint. So he would see what the received text was that he had, that the church had, the the Septuagint, as he was comparing it with the Hebrew original. And then there are actually two books from Tobit and Judith. He translated directly from the Aramaic texts that he could find, which were the oldest. So he had facility, obviously, in Greek and in Hebrew and in Aramaic. He is doing what basically modern translators do, but he was doing it as one man. And it's interesting. You know, you kind of hinted at this as well. Jerome's specific word choices for key biblical concepts have become a part of our everyday faith. For example, in Ephesians chapter 5, 31 to 32, we read, For this reason a man shall leave father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak in reference to Christ 
and the church. In the Vulgate, in the work that Jerome did, he translated that phrase, what we think of as the great mystery, he writes that it is a sacramentum, hoc manium, a great sacrament. Mystery and sacramentum, sacrament. This, What do we say a sacrament is? But it's a visible sign of an invisible reality. We don't know, we don't understand, except that we know that it shows forth in grace to us, and it communicates grace to us. And so this word sacramentum, which also can mean oath, it can mean promise. It was a Roman military word for the oath that a soldier would take to his general. This is the word that he chooses to describe this mystery that does something for us in the sacrament. And like, like you said, because of his work translating the Bible, his influence on basically literally every theologian in the West since is simply, it can't be cataloged, because every time a theologian after Jerome would quote the scriptures in their work, they were quoting his translation. This was the official translation of the church. And so Jerome is vitally, vitally important in the overall life of all of the church since. Wow. Yeah, you know, I was, um, as you were talking, I was taking a look at some of Jerome's translations. Obviously, I love the Psalms, right? <laughs> and right. I was looking at some of Jerome's translations of the Psalms. One thing I appreciate about what he does, he includes the prescripts. Uh, in the in the Masoretic text of the Psalms, or the Jewish text, there's, uh, there's these prescripts in there. Uh, the Jewish folks counted them as verses of the Psalm, but in the Septuagint version, uh, of the Psalms, which has a slightly different numbering after Psalm 9 and 10, they don't include the prescripts, but Jerome does, which I very, very much appreciate. Um, so give us uh, an example of what of what you mean when you're talking about the prescripts. So in Psalm 24, for example, um, I'm looking at the uh, revised Grail Psalter, which is okay. the one that we use at Mass now. So it says, um, a Psalm of David, right? And that, that counts as part of verse 1. And so um, Jerome has Samus David Ate Domine Levani Anima Meum. So uh, a psalm, let's see, that would be a psalm of David. Uh, Levavi is to lift. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So he includes that as part of the, the verse. And But but I love what he does there, though. Um, he includes that. And I when I pray the psalms, I include that as part of the verse because that's the way the Jewish people would have prayed it, you know, so I appreciate the fact that he keeps that, the prescripts there. Part of it, yeah. Well, Jerome, uh, in our last few minutes, I want to just kind of highlight, after finishing his translation work, he began writing commentaries on the biblical text, which often give us a behind-the-scenes insight into his translation choices. Uh, his commentaries are filled with allegorical references and explanations. They put him firmly in what we think of as the Alexandrian school of theology and biblical interpretation, which it emphasizes the divine nature of Jesus Christ in the Alexandrian school, whereas the Antiochian school, the other, the other one, emphasizes the human nature of the Lord and draws 
draws out through typology that we can read in the scriptures. Both of these are valid approaches in the, the church. Uh, it's often, we think of them in the context of Christology. Low Christology or Christology from below is Antiochene, and Christology from above that emphasizes, again, the divine nature is that Alexandrian. However, both contribute, you know, and we think of often, we own, think of in our own prayer, we will sometimes emphasize the wounds of Christ. That's very Antiochene. Uh, versus the divine power to forgive is Alexandrian. So we love them both. Jerome is incredibly influential. But the single most important thing that Jerome left us is this devotion to the sacred scriptures. He spent his and poured out his entire life in service to the word of God. He is the fellow from whom we get that fantastic, very familiar phrase uh, that sometimes gets a little twisted. So I want to read it. It is, Christ will not say to me what he said to his fellow Jews, you erred not knowing the scriptures and not knowing the power of God. For if, as Paul says, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, and if the man who does not know Scripture does not know the power and wisdom of God, then ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. That portion right there, that last bit, ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ, is really, for us, a daily reminder. It's a daily reminder that we need to be reading and encountering Christ in the Gospels. We need to be reading the Gospels to meet the Lord who we have been baptized into. We are the body of Christ, and we want to know who Christ is. What does it mean to be him, uh, to be the body here on earth? So we owe a debt of incalculable gratitude to St. Jerome, whose feast day is the 30th of September. Uh, May we always uh, ask him to keep us in his prayers, especially as we read and encounter Christ in the sacred scriptures. So that's St. Jerome, the great father and doctor. No, fantastic. And I think we both were able to go see his his tomb uh, when we were in the Holy Land. Well, so it's interesting. Uh, You can see his cave uh, in the Holy Land, but his major shrine is, oh, I forgot to mention this. His major shrine is actually St. Mary Major, the Basilica in Rome. So the majority of his relics were transferred during, I believe it was after the Crusades, uh, in order to protect him when they also brought the crib. Because remember, his cave and his study uh, after he left Rome was in Bethlehem. And so we know the place of Christ's birth because of, really in many ways, because of St. Jerome and his dedication to that. Because he had a a, a large group of Roman patrons, particularly women, uh, who were members of the patrician class in Rome. His relics were repatriated to Rome uh, that they might venerate their... uh, really their pastoral father. Uh, So unfortunately, Deacon, we've run out of time together and my voice has got, I need to go find a few slippery elm pills. So uh, (laughs) (laughs) we do invite you folks, uh, please do connect with previous episodes of the show at moderndeiradio.com. You can also connect with us on Facebook. If you have questions, comments, concerns, long songs, short songs, or epic poetry, just type in Living Stones Media into Facebook. So Deacon, until we gather next week. Might we have a blessing. May Almighty God bless you and keep you the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week here on Living Stones. 
You've been listening to Living Stones with Ken Hellenius and Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Living Stones is produced at the studios of Modern Day Radio in Portland, Oregon. For more information about this show, go to moderndayradio.com. That's M-A-T-E-R-D-E-I radio.com.